Let's continue our worship by taking our Bibles and turning to the book of Matthew. We'll be looking at the passage that was already read for us this morning. You'll find that on page 807 in the Pew Bible if you're using that today. But Matthew chapter 1, and I was going to cover all the way from verse 18 of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2, but I decided uh, this morning, as a matter of fact, that we didn't have an hour and a half, and so we're only covering half of that. (laughs) You're welcome. The reason why I originally wanted to cover the entire passage is because it blew me away in my reading of this text, that it seems that Matthew actually intended for the narrative to continue all the way from 118 to 223. But there's just so much there that we are going to spread it out over the course of the next couple weeks, and I'll try to point out why I think that we should at least understand these stories more together than we should individually as we get into the message. But to orient us to this text, I I need to tell you a story. It's true. And I will just be so transparent with you. I do not want to tell you this story. Because it's a personal story, so I shouldn't tell those very often anyway. Um, And if I was ever going to tell a story about myself, I would want it to be one in which I was the hero, right? I am not the hero of this story. This is a total loser moment in my life. And, like, I'm having a hard time working up the courage to tell you about it. But I have to. It'll help. A couple months ago, I'm on my way uh, to meet with a couple of pastors from Marco Island uh, at a burger place in this normal strip mall shopping center kind of thing. It's a warm day. I get out of my car, I grab my bag, and I'm about to step into the restaurant, but before I can even shut my back door, this guy comes up, well, actually two guys, in a white uh, SUV hybrid kind of a thing, conversion vehicle, and like pull up right beside me in great haste, and one of them jumps out and says, hey man, I really, really need to speak to you. I said, yeah, what's going on? He says, look, I've got this emergency. He says, I, it's going to be tough to explain, but just hear me out for a second. He says, I work in the audio industry. He says, I've got this set of speakers in the back of my car. I accidentally ordered two of them. I've got to get rid of one of them. And it... <laughs> Don't tell me you know where this story is going. Well, since many of you do know where it's going, I've I got to tell you, look, I, I, don't, I don't fall for that kind of stuff. I'm extremely skeptical. This does seem too good to be true. A a set of speakers that I don't even need for $1,000, like this home theater system, uh, and and he's like just letting it go for whatever. He says, I'll take anything. And I'm thinking, well, I've got 20 bucks, you know, like, why not? Well, so I I fall for it, and so I start doing the research, and he's like, look, you've got to check these things out. He says, look, you can find them on eBay. And so I even take a moment to call, and I'm not going to tell you who it was, but somebody in our church who I thought knew what they would be talking about and said, hey man, look, I've got this guy standing here right in front of me. He tells me that I've got a set of speakers for a thousand bucks and I can get it just for whatever I'm willing to offer. Should I take it? Have you ever heard of this brand? And he's doing research. He's actually doing research on the internet and he, and he like on the phone, I said, if you were me right now, I said, would you do this? I'm like, could I turn it around and like sell it and make some extra Christmas money or something? He's like, yeah, go for it. And I go for it, and I knew something was off. I knew something was off when 
the guys, I said, uh, he said, I said, I've only got 20. He said, well, can you do any more than that? I said, well, I don't know, maybe I can do 60. You know, like I'm just trying to like offer, you know, something because I feel bad for the guy, wrongly. Um, and he said, look, look, here's the deal. You need to, he says, there's a pesto machine, right? I don't even know what a pesto machine is, but he already knew where the ATM was in the shopping center. I didn't even know there was an ATM there. He takes me straight to the ATM, and as soon as he gets the money from me, he literally runs with the box of speakers to my car, throws it in the back seat, and burns rubber on the way out of the parking lot. And I'm thinking, that was weird. It hasn't, it hasn't hit me yet. I'm just thinking it's a little suspicious. And then a few moments later, I'm sitting at the table of the restaurant thinking that I may have gotten a great deal, but a lot of things just aren't lining up, and I start to look it up, and I realize that I have fallen for what is called a white van scam. In fact, it is such a popular scam that it has its own Wikipedia page. Not kidding. But there was that sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach that I had been taken for a ride, despite my best intentions, despite my typically solid judgment Like, I had just lost money on something that seemed too good to be true, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to trust humanity one more time. And it was a bad investment. Have you ever had that feeling? That that thing where something just seemed amazing, and you sit there, and you try to process it, and it's like right after the event, and you just start to scratch your head, and you wonder, is this really as great as they made it out to be? You know what it's like to start to have those suspicions and those doubt, like, doubts? Is, is, is this really all that was promised? Am, am I really getting what I bargained for here? Only to find out that it wasn't true. Every one of us, if you had to tell a testimony, could speak of some time that you received the bad end of a deal where you got burnt, you extended trust, and then you realized that it wasn't what the person was promising. And because of that, we all carry around with us a little measure, a healthy measure of skepticism. When something seems too good to be true for us, what do we think normally? It is. It is. When when people offer something that just seems amazing, it just seems outstanding, uh, we follow the old adage from Ronald Reagan, trust, but what? Verify. And because of that, we're rightly protected against some scams, against some people who would try to take advantage of us. But because of that, we also sometimes can't fully enjoy things that may actually be extremely good. There are valid things that are offered us that sometimes we just can't fully enjoy because we're always thinking, is this really real? We hold back in some way. We, we reserve. We don't lean in. We, we don't go all in because we're not absolutely positive whether or not this is really everything that it was cut out to be. And friends, I would warn you, that one of the most pivotal pieces of good news that you must fight the temptation to be skeptical with is that of the gospel itself. When you listen to the message of Jesus Christ, in some ways it could sound like, as an outsider, it could sound like wishful thinking. I mean, really. 
Like, it's pretty amazing, it's pretty stupendous, it's pretty unbelievable that God the Son would somehow enter into humanity through the womb of a virgin and then come and live a perfectly righteous life and then die a death for everyone who would believe in Him, rise again, and here's the the, the clincher, all you have to do is trust in Him, and you too can enjoy that same eternal life and just full, unending joy with God Almighty in heaven forever. Now, if I pitched you that deal on the street and you've never heard it before, how many of you are thinking, yeah, I'm buying I want to ask you this. Has there ever been a moment in your life in which you just think, I love this message of Jesus, but I'm not absolutely certain? I mean, how do we know? How do we know that this Jesus even existed? How do we know that if this Jesus actually existed, that He is indeed who He said He is? I know that's not the respectable questions that good church-going people like us tend to ask, but maybe secretly in your heart, you have wondered that from time to time. Is the text just like this one that is intended to remove those nagging doubts and fears? It is a text just like this one that has been inspired of God to restore your fullest confidence in an offer that could seem too good to be true. See, what you need to understand about the passage that you just read today is Matthew is writing to a group of Jewish people who are not prone to believing this. It isn't natural for them to believe that Jesus is the Messiah because in many ways He defied their expectations. They had been taught to look for some of the wrong things. And because of that, when the real thing came along, many of them were skeptical. And so Matthew drops a bomb on the congregation of all the people who are listening to this letter. And says right at the very beginning, I'm going to tell you something. Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus that you've heard about, He indeed was the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the promised Rescuer, ruler, blessing. Now, that is a huge statement, and he just lets it rest. But then, right from the outset, he begins to back it up. He begins to verify it. It's one thing to claim that Jesus was the ruler, the rescuer, the blessing of all mankind, but it's something else to back it up. So what does he do? How does he back it up? Well, we saw last week, he verifies that this Jesus was actually who he said he was by means of a genealogy. He he shows the birth record of the Christ and says, we all know that the Christ was going to come from the line of Abraham and he was going to come from the line of David and I've got the official records to prove it. This guy came from Abraham. He came from David. He indeed could be the Messiah. But follow the logic for a second. Just hang with me. Jesus wasn't the only descendant of David. That genealogy proves that he could have been the promised one, but it doesn't show that he was the promised one. Because there were a bunch of names of people who followed into the line of David. I'll put it this way. David had a lot of grandkids. So what would keep any of the other of them from being the Messiah, the chosen one, the promised one? And so Matthew takes his report a step further. 
He says, look, the genealogy that I present to you just shows that he could be the Messiah. But the stories that I'm about to tell you right now will prove that he was the Messiah. Not just could be, but was actually the Messiah. So the genealogical record just lays the foundation. But now Matthew is going to give us five evidencing episodes of the Messiah's birth. Five evidencing episodes of the Messiah's birth showing that only this one, only this Jesus could be the one who was promised. And the way that we know that is from putting the entire text together. So just like take your Bibles for a moment and just notice like kind of what happens if you're following the pattern of the story. Like you look in chapter 1 starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together and was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to interrupt for a second. And I want you to know that he's going to mention an amazing event. And then you get down to verse 20. He's going to use the word behold, which means pay attention, look at this, check this out. And then you're going to notice the pattern. In your Bible, it should be kind of blocked off. It looks like the, it looks different than the rest of the text. It's quoting from the Old Testament. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So, note the pattern. There's going to be an amazing event. Then there's going to be an invitation to reflect on that amazing event in light of what the Old Testament taught. Same thing in chapter 2. There's an amazing event. The star shows up, bringing these strangers from the east. And again, we get another one of those behold commands in there. And then look at verse 6. You've got an Old Testament text. Same thing happens in verses 13 through 15. An amazing event, and then evidence from the Old Testament. The same thing happens in verses 16 through 18. An amazing event, and then verification from the Old Testament. And then the same thing happens in verses 19 through 23. An amazing event, and a verification from the Old Testament. Do you see what Matthew is doing? He's saying, look, I want to tell you something. Here's something amazing that happened. And now, behold, check this out. I want you to see how this was a fulfillment of what was predicted in the Old Testament. And he tells five stories back to back that verify that this Jesus not only could have been the Messiah, but actually was. And what is he trying to do? He wants to engender within them a confidence that this Jesus was the Christ. He wants to remove all doubts and say he not only could be, but he actually was the promised one. And he wants to do the same for us. But because of the distance between us and the original audience, I'm only going to focus this morning on the first two of these evidencing episodes. And we'll look at the last three next week. So, we're looking at two evidencing episodes that strengthen our confidence that Jesus was the Christ. And the first is, in verses 18 through 25, the virgin conception. The virgin conception. The the virgin conception evidences Jesus as the Messiah. Now remember, there was a pattern that we were noticing here. An amazing event, and then a prophetic explanation. Look at the amazing event in verses 18 through 20. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's there. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. The the Holy Spirit, before Mary had ever enjoyed a sexual relationship with her husband, actually comes upon her and, and produces a child within her. 
Uh, that word betrothed, many of you know well, or you've heard it in previous Christmas sermons, just culturally translated, it's something more than modern engagement, something less than modern marriage. It's kind of a happy medium, somewhere in between. Now, what it ultimately denotes is that one year period of time in the life of a Jewish couple in which they were legally married to one or but one another but had not physically come together in a relationship. So it was normal practice for someone to actually be married legally by law. I mean, you'd have to get a divorce to break it off. And for that whole first year, you know what the husband would do? He didn't really spend much time with his fiance. He would actually spend time at his own home, at the home of his own parents, adding on to the house, if you will. He was preparing a place for his new bride, and then at the culmination of that year of waiting, they would then consummate the relationship. It is in that particular time that we find ourselves here, and it is crystal clear, Matthew's making it crystal clear, that they have not had a physical relationship. Before they had come together, she is already pregnant, and that is amazing. That is astounding. And Joseph even believes it to be. This isn't a normal run-of-the-mill event for Joseph. Look at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You know what he's naturally thinking? This is impossible. You could tell me that this child is from the Holy Spirit, but I don't believe you. And therefore, Being a just man, being someone who upholds the righteous standards of God's law, I'm not going to marry you, I'm going to divorce you. And Joseph does it in a meek and gentle and quiet way, and he resolves in his own mind, I can't marry this woman, we need to put her away quietly. But notice verse 20. This is where things get amazing again. You're going to see that word behold. But as he considered these things, behold, notice this, check this out, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And here's the supernatural explanation. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph gets a a, a radical invasion of the supernatural. That's what a miracle is. A radical invasion of the supernatural. Now it would be easy for us to think, as 21st century hearers that, well, this is very unlikely. This is very unlikely. Can I just debunk something for us right now? Of course it's unlikely. That's why it's called supernatural. Natural means that it is normal. Supernatural means it's over and above that. Matthew knows exactly what he's writing. He is recording a miraculous event. And he says, as unlikely as it may seem, an angel shows up, and there's been no prophetic revelation for 400 years. An angel shows up, appears to Joseph, and verifies Mary's story and says, Mary or anyway, this child's from the Holy Spirit. This is astounding. And Matthew wants you to, to see this. He wants you to behold this. And he wants you to understand further its connection to the Old Testament. This wasn't just an amazing event. This was something that had been predicted or prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. Because it goes on to say in verse 21, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. He will be the promised Savior. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now he's going to quote Isaiah 7.14. Behold, 
The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is indicating that it was, at least in part, the expectation of the Jewish people that they would have a prophetic rescuer, deliverer, God himself, who would come through the womb of a virgin. Now, if any of you have ever taken a class in secular first century history, if you've ever looked at the life of Jesus through the eyes of someone who wasn't a Christian, they will immediately try to debunk the claim of Isaiah 7.14 by going back to the original context and saying, nobody would have read Isaiah 7 and actually expected this to have been a virginal conception. And this is the way that they argue. They'll say that the word virgin in Hebrew in Isaiah 7.14 just means young maiden. It doesn't necessarily mean that someone was indeed a virgin. And so, in the original context, what you had in Isaiah 7 going on was God's people being attacked by Syria. So they're being attacked by these foreign invaders. God gives a prophecy or a sign to the people that they're going to be delivered. And you know what the sign was? That a young woman is going to have a baby, and this baby is going to grow up and live under peace. Therefore, God is going to deliver. So whoever the young woman is, they don't know. Some people think that it was the king's wife. Some people think it was Isaiah's wife. They're not sure, but they just say, you know what, it's not really a supernatural sign that's promised in Isaiah 7. It's just promising that some young woman's going to have a baby, and that baby's going to grow up, and God's just saying that he's going to deliver them from Syria. And he did. They wouldn't have expected anything different. But is that really true? There may have been some sense of fulfillment of Isaiah 7 originally, but was that all they were expecting? Friends, I would argue with you that they were expecting much more. Because when you read the book of Isaiah, beginning at chapter 7, you begin to see an expectation of a promised one who will come and not just live like the original child of Isaiah 7, but one who would live and dominate. You go to chapter 8, you'll find that same name, Emmanuel, again, and now this Emmanuel owns the land, owns God's land. You get to chapter 9, and you start to receive a promise of someone who is actually going to come and rule and dominate. You get to chapter 10, and you see the same thing, the promise of this branch who will shoot up from the root of Jesse, and he, the government will be upon his shoulders. I mean, he's going to be called Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor. I mean, you start reading Isaiah all the way through and you're thinking, there's way more going on here than just some kid being born. Something bigger. You say, well, how do we know that? Here's how we know that. Because when faithful Jews were commissioned to translate the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, they specifically, listen to this, chose the explicit word for virgin, one who has not had sexual relations for Isaiah 7.14. If you look in the Greek version of the Old Testament, you will not find the Hebrew word maiden 
you will find the explicit Hebrew word virgin. No Jew in their right mind would have actually put that explicit word down if they weren't expecting something greater. And it is in this particular passage that Matthew finally discloses for us, here is the ultimate fulfillment of Emmanuel, God with us. This was a supernatural event, one that has been predicted from the Old Testament, and who we have, this Jesus, is actually the promised Messiah it was predicted think of all the things that you could predict I mean think of all the things that that they could have said were, were would be the sign if they were writing this and making this up on their own like think of the, the the stuff that they would have like made up nobody would have made this up I, I used to play this little trick on my kids I don't think see I've got my keys on me no I don't have them so this is the way the trick would work I would tell them that I had magical powers. And I would prove that by holding my hand out to the trunk of my car, saying abracadabra and having it open. That was a cool trick, right? You, I mean, you all know how it works, just in case you didn't. It was me having the remote in my hand. They never saw it. And I would just tell them, like, look, Daddy has magical powers, abracadabra. And, like, for two years, that thing worked. <laughs> they thought that Daddy had this magical power to open the trunk. You know what, friends, uh, we all know, like, kind of uh, just little cheap tricks like that, you know, where somebody says, oh, yeah, I've got this great ability, kind of like the guy at the fair who can guess your weight, you know? <laughs> like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Or maybe he figures out a few people's names. You're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. You know, but the thing is, those signs, they may be cute, they may be interesting, but they're not, like, mind-blowing. Like, there's a lot of dads who could run the abracadabra trick on their children, Right? And at the end of the day, it's just me opening the trunk. It's not like I'm opening, you know, like some huge gates to a castle with my hands. I mean, it is just always the trunk of my Hyundai Sonata. What Isaiah does here, what the Old Testament prophets do in their predictions of the Messiah aren't just the stuff of fortune cookies and horoscopes. It's unique huge, unrepeatable phenomena. A virgin conception. And that is exactly what we have recorded for us in this text. Notice verse 24, the way things play out. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So here's a woman who has no sexual experience who gives birth to a son and he did exactly like the angel said and he called his name Jesus Savior. This is an evidencing episode. And again, some could try to say, well, isn't this a myth? I mean, what keeps us from just saying that this is just a great myth? Weren't there other stories of weird conceptions and births in the ancient Near East? Now, friends, I actually took the time this week to read uh, the ten other most similar uh, stories to the virgin conception of Jesus, and frankly, none of them read like this. You can find it on the internet. You will read these accounts and you think, oh, this is like ridiculous fiction. This is the stuff of folklore. The New Testament reads way differently, and I'm not the only one to think this. 
The first one to help me with this was someone uh, named C.S. Lewis. You know him for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But what most people refuse or don't really understand about him is that he was actually a literary genius. He taught at Oxford literature. He He specialized in myth and folklore. He had read thousands of myths, and somebody asked him one day, isn't this the stuff of myth? He says, you've never read a myth. He says, I've read thousands, and nothing in the New Testament reads like ancient Near Eastern myth. You could do this on your own. Look at the others. Compare it to this. We're talking real places, real names, in history. This is verifiable data. And not only from a Jewish Matthew, but also from a Greek Luke who will verify the same story. We have a real account of a virgin conception And this is evidence that this Jesus that we worship really is who we say He is. This is huge. And if this actually happened, friends, listen to this. If this actually happened, if this isn't some like pie in the sky, like wishful thinking, Santa Claus type of reality, but like a real, like down on the earth, like tangible thing you can hold in your hand, something in time and space and history. If this actually happened, two things are true. One, He actually is the Savior of our sins. Sin isn't some type of spiritual, social construct. Sin is real. We really needed a Savior from it. And this Jesus actually came and remedied a sin problem. And we should trust Him as such. If this is really true, you should believe and embrace the fact that the greatest problem with this world is rebellion against God and that Jesus actually came to remedy that, to to rescue us from that sin problem. And He accomplished it through His life and His death and His burial and His resurrection. And sin indeed is remedied through Him. It is a real problem that has been remedied by a real Christ. And if this is true, If this Jesus actually is who they say He is, not only has He actually rescued us from sin, but listen to this, He is actually, actually with us. The promise is that God would be with us. He would no longer be just ruling and reigning from afar. He would no longer have His presence confined to a holy space in a temple somewhere. Now Jesus lived flesh and blood, humanity with us. And indeed, He is ascended into heaven this day, but He promises to still be with us in the person of the Spirit. And every believer in this room who is truly trusting in Christ actually has the presence of God actually with them in the person of the Holy Spirit. A gift that was reserved only for special people at special times in the Old Testament is now made possible for us all. Jesus, God Himself, is actually with us. This isn't a hypothetical. This is real. And you can rely on that. And so this is evidence. Matthew's episode here provides evidence. The evidence is indeed a virgin conception, but there's more evidence. He gives another episode. And the second episode is the specific origin of Jesus. The first one is the virgin conception. The second is the specific origin. He moves from the genealogical to the geographical. He's going to focus on place at this point. And and I want you to look for I'm going to read the passage for you. I want you to read it along with me, but listen out for those two things that Matthew is trying to do. 
Remember, the first thing is he's going to tell you an amazing event, right? And then the second thing is he's going to give you a prophetic explanation. When we read this text, listen for the amazing event, listen for the prophetic explanation. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. You see the prophetic explanation? And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, when you take that text as a whole, do you see the amazing events? Now, there's something pretty astonishing happening here as well. I mean, he's giving a report of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem of Judea. And you're thinking, okay, yay, Bethlehem. We sang today, oh, little town of Bethlehem. Oh, that's really cool. Why would anybody ever write a Christmas song celebrating the name of the place where he was born? And by the way, if you know anything about Bethlehem, it's not that impressive. I mean, most people believe that at this time, there's about 300 people living in the town of Bethlehem. I don't even know if you call it a town in today. I mean, our neighborhoods are bigger than Bethlehem. And yet, for some reason, people are celebrating it. Matthew finds it very important for you to understand right at the outset of this narrative that he was born here. Why? Well, because something astounding is happening. Something astonishing, something amazing Because notice, it's in the days of Herod the king. We'll talk more about him next week. But a real king, actually, if you go to Jerusalem today, from what I understand, you're likely to hear more about Herod the Great than you are Jesus himself. (laughs) He is such a major player in history. He was the ruler of the people at the time. Half Jewish, a real king, at least in the eyes of Rome, ruling over and there's going to be this contrast between the real king Herod and the real king Jesus. And notice that, behold, he's going to say, check this out. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Um, Time out for a second. On Mondays, you may not know this, but I I get critiqued by the elders and the staff. Um, I ask for it. It's not just they critique me every Monday and I'm just like head hang down. I ask, you know, about feedback from the sermon. You know what, like, the the most consistent critique that I get from the staff is that I make too little of, um, like, Sunday school lessons. Like, from kids, I kind of poke fun at my own upbringing in Sunday school. Um, You know, I don't mean to do that, but let's be honest, friends. Sometimes the stuff that we learn, like, we tell our children or the stuff that we get as kids is so, like, childrenized. Yeah, I made up a word. So childrenized that it doesn't actually convey the, the truest truth. Yeah, okay, let me say it better. It, it's not true. It's just not true. So, you know, if you have a manger scene up at home that shows the wise men with their crowns kneeling with the shepherds, all right, that's totally cool. I'm not saying you got any heresy going on, but I am telling you that's not what actually happened. Now, I'm only trying to shock you just a little bit. Because I want you to read the text for what's there. What you need to understand is that 
they were blown away. Matthew's readers would have been blown away that these magi, that's the term I want to use for them, these magi show up and worship Jesus. See, the way that the Sunday school version of the story often goes, or the one that you normally see in Christmas pageants, is that these guys, these kings of the East, were faithful followers of, of, of Judaism. And they had been reading the book of Micah. And they had been looking for a star to rise in the east, which actually would have been the opposite direction for them, but that's neither here nor there. They're waiting for a star to rise in the east. And they knew, and like this, this royalty, this just held over Judean royalty, makes their way to Bethlehem, and they worship Jesus. And isn't it to be expected that the rulers of the world would come and bow at the feet of Jesus because they've rightly read His Word? Friends, Matthew wants you to be blown away at who's coming and where they came from. Magi, in this culture, in first century Greco-Roman world, are basically court astrologers slash astronomers. I know in our day we draw a hard line between astrology and astronomy, but in that day they did not. They thought that the whole world was a connected piece, and so they look at stars and they see things and they think that it has bearing on earth, hence the origin of what we now call horoscopes. These were court astrologers, astronomers. They, they were associated with royalty, but they were not themselves royalty. They were not kings. Please don't get the impression that they were that. And there are plenty of ancient Near Eastern documents that will show there was always a contrast between true royalty and magi. But they did serve kings. So these men, they're like, I mean, think of it this way. Magi is the word from which we get magic. And Jewish people aren't friends of magic. It's witchcraft. You get stoned for this kind of stuff. And so we've got this guy, these guys who are associated with a foreign cult, but have at least some kind of royal connection. And they're the ones that receive a supernatural sign that a promised king has been born in a foreign land. And then comes the stuff about the star. And as cool as it is for me to like try to wow you with some like information about Halley's Comet showing up somewhere between 10 and 12 B.C., or to tell you about the alignment of Jupiter and Saturn in 7 B.C., trying to give some type of naturalistic phenomena for the appearing of a star. Friends, what I want you to understand is that this is a miracle. It wasn't just a natural phenomena. You say, how do you know that? Because the star moves. The star not only will show up, disappear, then show up again, it will lead them, listen to this, to a specific house on a specific street. Stars don't do that. They may help you find north, south, east, or west, but they don't tell you how to get to my house. And this star moves, and I don't care if you, whatever it was, they called it a star. It could have been an angel with a flashlight. But I want you to get this. It was supernatural. And it led them directly to where Jesus was. And Matthew places all his emphasis on the place. He's not focused on the magi. He's focused on the place, and they're just a tool to get us to the right spot. So notice, something supernatural takes place. you got this crazy stuff happening in which, in, in verse 2, these wise men, they just show up out of nowhere, 
from the east. They come to Jerusalem, and they're saying... Now, now why do they show up in Jerusalem? Because the star only leads them to the land of Judea. Well, they figure, this is their natural thought process. A king's been born. Well, where would a king be born, folks? In a palace. So they go to the palace of Judea. They go to the capital of Jerusalem. They're thinking, maybe Herod's child is this promised king. And so they go ask Herod, someone who is extremely suspicious of anybody who would claim or make any claim toward his power. Again, more next week. But right now, they show up there, and then what happens? They ask him, say, hey, we heard that there's a king that's been born here. And he's thinking, I've already been born. Who are you talking about? And notice this, when they make this announcement, Herod heard this and he was troubled naturally because he thinks that someone has been born who will be a threat to his rule. But notice this, look at verse 3, and all Jerusalem with him. What what does he mean by all Jerusalem? He's basically, it's like saying all of Washington was in an uproar. You see, Herod wasn't fully Jewish, he was only half Jewish, and guess what? He had totally taken over the kingship on account of just kicking butt and taking names. And because of that, because of his political savvy, because of his military might, you know who he had put in office? His buddies. He had put people in office who really didn't belong there. The high priest, the people who were making the decisions of that day, like they were all in uproar because they don't want Herod's power to be threatened because their power will be threatened. And this is not good news for them. But listen to this. Even though their power would be threatened by it, all of the scribes, all of the official scholars of the day, and the chief priests, the religious leaders of the day, know beyond any shadow of a doubt where the exact place, the exact village, the exact town that the promised Christ, the promised King would be born. And they are the ones who say, He'll be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.4, written 700 years before this very date, had promised them, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, or by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come, listen to this, a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Remember that promise we read last week in 2 Samuel chapter 7? It said that there would be a ruler who would come from Judah, one who would shepherd the people of Israel. There is a specific promise that this guy would come from Bethlehem, and it is ultimately to Bethlehem that these men will go. It is prophesied from the very beginning. We have a supernatural event, we have prophetic explanation, and then the supernatural event continues. Look at verses 7 through 12. So then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. So he wants to know the timing. He wants to know how old this child is. And here's, by the way, friends, how we know that the wise men weren't there with the shepherds because they took off on their journey when the star appeared. The star appeared when the child was born. There's no planes in those days. It takes a little bit of time to get from one location to another. If they're coming from the east, making their way all the way to Jerusalem, it's a couple months worth of a journey, especially with a convoy. And so they make it to Jerusalem, then they have to make it to Bethlehem. They're not there on the same night. And he says, all right, guys, I want you to go find him. Go to Bethlehem. Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. <laughs> Naturally, he's going to like, present himself as someone who's interested in worshiping a king. 
But even us, now, we know what he's really up to. And it says in verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And look, no, look at the word again. Behold and behold. Look at this. Notice this. Check this out. The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, it showed up again. When that star showed up again, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Something miraculous happened. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. So these foreign dignitaries go and worship at the feet of Jesus. These Gentiles are worshiping the true king of the Jews. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The reason why we sing we three kings is because there's three gifts. But nobody knows how many of these astrologers there were. The point is that pagans are worshiping the chosen king in the chosen place. This indeed is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And the last supernatural thing that happens is in verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Do you see the alarming specificity of these prophecies? Uh, Again, earlier I briefly referenced fortune cookies and horoscopes. Just recall the last time you went to a Chinese restaurant and you broke open that thing. Whatever that was that you read on that slip of paper could have been true of anyone else in that room at any particular time. They were glistening generalities. I could say something to you like, I know what's going to happen to you this week. Something good is going to happen in the next three days. Or you know what? You better watch out. Because things are going to get pretty tough in traffic at some point within the next week. And you can come back to me and say, wow, he's brilliant. Like, he knows stuff. (laughs) It's glistening generalities. But listen, friends, this Old Testament prophecy written 700 years ago, is it predicting, listen, it's not even predicting that he's going to be born in like the, the power center, Jerusalem. It's predicting that he's going to be born in, pardon the word, podunk holler. Like in the middle of nowhere. In in Bethlehem. Its only claim to fame is that David was actually born there, but he didn't even rule there. He was born there and moved on. And so we ask ourselves the question, is this true? If this actually happened, if he was actually, if this Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, having the genealogical credentials that he had, having the special birth that he had, you start to put all this together, what does it mean? It means that an actual ruling king was born that day. Not a hypothetical king, not a spiritual king, but a real, live, actual king. One who would be a threat to Herod the Great himself. Hence the events that will happen in the next few pages in which babies will be slaughtered. Herod is so threatened by it. He's a real king. And what does that mean for us? If He actually is a real king, what does that demand of us? Well, these uh, pagan astrologers model it for us well. Homage, tribute, worship. 
It's interesting. It says that they worshiped and bowed themselves down before him. You know, friends, oftentimes we think of worship just as an emotional experience, but the word worship is the Greek word proskuneo. It just means to prostrate oneself, to like literally get on the ground. So notice, worshiped and bowed down. What did they do? As a symbol of this child's superiority, they literally laid themselves out on the floor acknowledging the fact that he had rule and reign over them. And then they give him the best of what they had. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Friends, if we worship a real king, what is our response to him? It is to figuratively lay ourselves out before him and to give him the best of what we have. That is worship. That is what we're doing at Christmas. It's not just the cool vibe you get from some of your favorite Christmas albums. It is you submitting yourself to Jesus and giving him the best of what you have. And that involves our morals, that involves the material things that God blesses us with, We say, Lord, I am yours and all that I have is yours. That is worship at Christmas. But only if this is a real king. If this is just legend, if this is just folklore, we're okay just to like hold on to this as like a cool story to give us the warm fuzzies from time to time. But if this is a real king, he deserves tribute and homage. He deserves us submitting ourselves to him and giving the best of what we have for him. And so Matthew would have us really sit at the table of the burger place. And before ever partaking of the deal of the century, he's actually inviting us to analyze the offer. That guy in the parking lot that day wanted me to do it right then. He didn't want me to think about it. Matthew's recording his stuff. He's writing it down so that you could sit there and look at it. And he knows that on the surface, it seems a little too good to be true. And so he starts to walk you through the evidence. He gives you a genealogical record that shows that this indeed could be the Messiah. But then he gives you these evidencing episodes to show that this indeed is the Messiah. Who else has come from a virgin conception, not in folklore, but recorded in actually history by multiple authors? Who actually was born in Bethlehem with those credentials as promised 700 years earlier? A real king. A real ruler. If you're here today and you said, Justin, I, I'm not that convinced yet. I'm not there. I, I need more evidence. You know what? It's okay. You can have more evidence because guess what? Matthew writes an entire book. He's going to get you started right here and you know what it's inviting you to do? Read the rest of the account and see if these things are so. Can I tell you this, friends? Uh, You could be a a little skeptical at Christmas. I get it. Here you are. You came today and you're thinking like, wow, this guy actually believes this stuff is true. I didn't expect that. It's a little shocking. No, listen. I know it's shocking. What do we do? Here's what I would like to do. If that's you, you're like, I want more evidence. I want more time. I I need to see more. I'd encourage you to use that little connection card that we have in the pew pocket and just say, need more evidence. Put your email or something. And this is what I would be willing to do. Me or someone else in the church. 
would be willing to meet with you and read through the, the Gospel of Matthew or read through the Gospel of Mark to help you understand the claims of Jesus contained in his word. I could point you to extra biblical stuff, but I'm going to start off with the sources itself, and let's give you time to analyze the record of Jesus and his word. That's for the skeptical. That's a legitimate offer. This isn't high pressure. I'm not telling you today, like that guy who sold me the stereo, you've got to do this now or deal's off. I'm telling you, investigate the claims of Christ as evidenced in his word. But let's say that you're here today say, Justin, I'm not skeptical all the time. I'm just skeptical sometimes. Listen, it's okay, but on the basis of this account, let me implore you to actually believe and embrace that this Jesus is who he said he is. Be gone with your reservations. Be gone with your hesitations. Like, like just go ahead and, and place your, your confidence in Christ. It, move from skeptical to actual. Move from trust and verify to trust and verified. Here is your verification. And, and what does that mean for you specifically? Like, if this is really true, if this is something that actually happened, here's what you can know. Three things. One, this Jesus actually saves you from your sins. Write that down. Remember it. He actually saves you from your sins. Hey, you've sinned against Him this week. That's why He came to remedy that. You're struggling with ongoing sin? Listen to this. He actually came to remedy that. You think that something that you've done is so big that it can't be remedied? Listen, He actually came to remedy that. He actually saves us from our sins. Rely on Him. Secondly, this is true. Now that this is verified, He actually dwells with us. This Jesus actually dwells with us. That is the specific promise, Emmanuel, God with us. He came and He entered into our situation and through the person of the Holy Spirit, He still is with us, enabling us, helping us, guiding us, convicting us. You just need to do, I I just had a great conversation with one of our members yesterday where they were talking about their life before Christ and their life after Christ. Friends, don't get too used to or like think it's too commonplace for the Spirit to be working and directing in your life. Just think of what it was like before Christ. This particular gentleman was telling me what it was like in his home when he was growing up and how horrific things were and how things are in his own home now. He said they're not perfect, but it is a world of difference. Friends, that is because God Himself is with us. He is making a difference. This is not the kind of stuff that the Naples Daily News will ever write about, but there are a couple hundred people here today bearing testimony to the fact that God is with them and has made an impact in their life. He is with us, actually with us. And then if we move from the skeptical to the actual, if we go from trust and verified to trust and verified, we can hold on to the fact that He actually reigns over us. He actually reigns over us. And His reign, His rule, friends, is good. And so we submit to Him. We submit to Him. I remember as a child, I was, well, a child, I was probably 16, 17 years old, and President Bush came to visit my hometown. Greenville, North Carolina, 80,000 people when school's in session. Not that big a place. But it was the biggest deal. Kids got out of school 
I mean, like, we were all, like, lining up to get into the little Coliseum where he was going to be in. And we don't even have, like, a, like a total, like, I mean, like, it isn't, I mean, the president has checks and balances, you know, like, his power is limited compared to a true monarch. <laughs> and yet, you would have thought that, like, that the, it was the biggest, it was the biggest thing that ever happened in our town. It was like, oh, I remember one of my friends, he was in line, and President Bush was walking by, and he shook his hand. And like he didn't wash his hand for a week. Just, it was such a big deal to him that he had touched the president's hand. A real ruler was in our presence. Friends, Jesus is more real than a George H.W. Bush or a Donald Trump. He rules, he reigns, and he demands real submission. So what does that look like? It looks like you doing whatever he has called you to do in his word. And if there is anything in your life, hear me well, that you are doing that is actively out of alignment with what he wants, with what he would have, you are not submitted to King Jesus. I don't care what you do in here on Sunday, what songs you sing, what scriptures you read, whose hands you shake. You are not submitted to King Jesus if you're not doing what He has clearly revealed in His Word. It is submission. And the second is adoration. So what does adoration look like? It it is us giving Him the best of what we have. He is a real King, and He really deserves the best of what we have. And I'm not just talking about the offering basket. I'm talking about the best of our time, the best of our energy, the best of our affections. Like, He gets the best. You know, I've been uh, convicted of late. Sometimes I'll have an early morning here at the church. I'll have early morning meetings. The day goes all day long. You guys know what this is like. Women, you work a full day. And you get home, and you know that it's time to minister to your family. And you walk through the door, and you're absolutely exhausted. And what they get, sorry kids, is the leftovers, right? It wasn't the best of my time and energy. The meetings in the morning got the best of my time and energy. They get the leftovers. But I still give them what I've got. That's why I enjoy Saturday so much, because it is actually on Saturday that it's a day where they can actually get the best of me. I tell you that story because, friends, there is times in which like, you're going to have to give the best of what you have to your job, the best of what you have to your family. But listen, generally speaking, the best of what you have with your time and your energy and your resources should regularly go to Jesus himself. That includes, yes, time in his word and prayer, but it also includes doing things that he himself would have you do. And yeah, you're going to have to work hard. And yes, you need to spend time with family. I'm not encouraging everyone to live as a monk and go move out to the desert somewhere. I am saying that we should live as if Jesus is the most important thing going on. Let me ask it this way. If people were to look at you and they would just try to figure like, what is like the number one thing in his life? What does he or she live for? Would they actually say Jesus? That's what worship looks like. That's what giving the best looks like. Even if it is in your work, they know that you're doing it for Jesus. Even if it is time with your family, they know that you're doing it for Jesus. He is a king, a real king, an actual king, and he is worthy of it. And so let us this week celebrate the wonder of this child, our king, the promised Christ. Let's pray.
Father, Lord, you have made it clear that your son has actually entered into time and space and history or through these supernatural events that were prophesied in the Old Testament. And this isn't just some or first century reality, Lord, this is something that affects us here and now and today, and I pray, Lord, that it would. I pray that, Lord, you would continue to work, Lord, in the hearts of these people, in the hearts of this church, in my own heart, so that people would look and see that, that we really do live for a real and breathing King, or that we are submitted to Him, that we are trusted, trusting in Him, that we are worshiping Him, that we are depending upon Him, or make that real in tangible ways this week in the life of this congregation. And if there's anyone here who's still unconvinced, they're not yet there, they, they're not sure that this Jesus is who He said He is, I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth. That they would be enabled to believe as they read the testimony of Your Word. That some would even take us up on that offer to, to look in the Gospels together so that You could speak through these historical and Spirit-inspired accounts to bring more to saving faith in You. Or do this work, or through our church, continue to honor the person of Christ here. And it's in Jesus' name I pray and ask these things. Amen.